is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. On this week's episode of Digital Village, there's been a lot of conversation about herd immunity and the Swedish model with regards to combating the coronavirus pandemic. Leilani Albano interviews USC professor of molecular biology and immunology, Paula Cannon, to talk about concerns with herd immunity as a primary strategy for tackling the coronavirus. But first, it's not just the presidential election that matters. Here in California, we have quite a few propositions on the ballot, a lot of which are a little bit confusing. I'm joined by AI and privacy policy researcher Peter Eckersley to talk about Prop 24, which makes some amendments to the California Consumer Privacy Act, and Prop 25, which is a referendum on a law that replaced money bail with a system based on public safety and flight risk. We start with Prop 25. Now, this is convoluted to say the least, and there's actually quite a bit of history here. Peter, could you give us the background on how we got to Prop 25 and why it's coming to a vote for Californians? The backstory for Prop 25 and the SB 10 legislation that it sits on top of is incredibly complicated. It started with a group of criminal justice reform organizations here in California, led by the ACLU, but including groups like Ella Baker Center, SE Justice, SEIU, Silicon Valley Debug, local criminal justice reform organizations that were trying to end the very unjust system of money bail, where defendants would get an enormous bail figure and then be forced to sit in a jail cell, unable to essentially do the work of proving their own innocence, or be forced into the hands of a, a bail bondsman who would lend them the bail money on, on incredibly high interest rates. And that just added one more problem to so many of the people sitting in jails in, in California. Ending money bail clearly looks like a, a really important thing that needs to happen. But the legislation that was going to do that, called SB 10, was drastically changed by an intervention by the judges of the state of California, the Judicial Council. The Judicial Council said, well, we'll support this objective of ending money bail, but we want to have artificial intelligence systems, risk assessment tools to predict who's dangerous and who's not dangerous, and we'll automatically let out the people who are quote-unquote low risk and detain the people who are quote-unquote high risk. Problem being that those risk assessment tools turn out to be very flawed, extremely biased. If you happen to be black, your odds of being labeled high risk if you're actually low risk at twice as high. So super problematic use of AI. But because the judges are so influential in Sacramento, as soon as they took that position, the bill passed. The original organizations that had lobbied for it, the the reform organizations split and many of them started opposing what had started as their own legislation. And then others, I think, saw the situation in Sacramento as a compromise and wanted to support incremental reform that had problems, but was a step in the right direction. And so that happened. The legislation passed. ACLU opposed it. And then the bail bonds industry sneakily turned around and started gathering signatures for Prop 25 to put it on the ballot using the ACLU's opposition as its figurehead. Uh, And so you had people going around saying, stand with ACLU, sign to to repeal SB 10. But ACLU hadn't intended at all to be siding with the bail bonds industry. They were trying to abolish that industry. They're playing into exactly like what they are, though, right? They're the skeevy industry. So you expect them to kind of pull stuff like this. So now we're confronted with basically a choice between two bad options. If we vote yes, then we get this very flawed version of SB 10 that 
does abolish money bail, which is good, but has all this other problematic stuff in it, AI and other things. Or if you vote no, you're siding with the bail bonds industry and reinstating this extremely serious profiteering on some of the most vulnerable people in the state of California. What's fundamentally at stake here is the degree of incarceration in California and the United States as a whole. We know that relative to crime, it's way too high. Like it might be three or four times higher than it really should be. When you look at that incarceration and try to say, well, why is it too high? There are a lot of reasons, but one of them is a lot of people are detained prior to a hearing or a trial. And so simplifying the the bail process to release people uh, who aren't dangerous before the hearing is a way to get people out of jail and reduce the harm that happens from that, reduce the cost of keeping them in prison. Yeah, this feels really tricky or in a sticky situation, really either way. Yes. One of the tricky things about Prop 25 is that for many of us, we look at this particular way of abolishing money bail and say, well, it comes with a lot of compromises, all this this use of AI to make decisions and other changes to the pretrial process that public defenders and others are not totally comfortable with. And so some people are saying we should vote no and try and get a better version of money bail abolition. The catch is the California constitution complicates that. It means that if we vote no, then the legislature will be in some ways constrained by the people's decision from Uh, abolishing money bail with a different piece of legislation. Not totally constrained. It's going to be very complicated. There'll be litigation. There's this um, opportunity the bail bonds industry will have to ensnare alternative legislation in complex lawsuits that stretch out for years. And so it's pretty hard to pick an obvious choice. Either way, we're going to need to change the law after Prop 25 has decided. I don't feel like there are good options here. It would have been better if Sacramento had, and the system had given us a better choice. So that's Prop 25, which doesn't really leave us in in a great place either way. And it feels in some ways that Prop 24 is similar. So Prop 24 amends the consumer privacy laws that came into effect earlier this year. And yeah, this really just feels like another rock in a hard place prop here. Prop 24 also introduces the quote-unquote loyalty card system, which the ACLU calls it a pay-for-privacy loophole that really could threaten the privacy rights we as Californians enjoy by default. Prop 24, it's a bundle of changes to privacy, and there are some good things in there and some bad things. And so you can go through the list. One thing that Prop 24 if it passes, will do is make it easier for those loyalty card programs to offer a huge price difference in order to buy data from you. And I think some people view this as fine. It's like a quote unquote free market for how much your data is worth. But other people are pretty unhappy with that and will vote no on Prop 24 because they think that privacy should be a fundamental human right and everyone should get it. It shouldn't be a thing you need to pay for. So that's probably one big dividing line. Another would be that Prop 24 relies on opt-out models rather than opt-in models. So an opt-in model is one where, by default, companies don't get to use your data. 
and they have to ask you first. Opt out is more the world is full of vampires that are collecting all the data. <laughs> you can hold up this cross, the opt out cross, and chase some of them away some of the time. Of course, the cross never works perfectly well, right? It's like you got the wrong vampire or whatever. But for some kinds of, of privacy intrusion, the opt out will work. And so I think that's a really big philosophical difference. Many of my privacy advocate colleagues believe strongly in opt-in as the model. And so they're very skeptical of Prop 24 on those grounds. Personally, I'm such a partial pessimist about the privacy fights we have that I'm somewhat more open to opt-out because I'm not always sure that we can get opt-in to work in the United States. But Europe with the GDPR has made a big push for opt-in. And so maybe a vote no creates more long-term pressure for the United States to follow something like the GDPR strong privacy model. Right. If some of these tech companies already have to follow that because they're operating in Europe, it's not like it's that much harder to implement it here. Well, that's certainly true. And I think there's a, a complex strategic game for the tech companies. Do they fold to the incentives created by Europe and the GDPR, or do they try to back an alternative model in California? which is the obvious place to start, and then the United States as a whole, and try and weaken some of the less convenient or more like strongly, annoyingly pro-privacy parts of the GDPR. And I think we'll see lots of those games play out in the next few years. There are some things in, in some places where I also, you know, as a privacy person, have some sympathy for that weakening. I think one of the things in Prop 24 is expanding the scope of when companies can retain security-related information. So basically tracking people in order to do anti-fraud or anti-abuse. And that's that's a, a situation where, again, it doesn't feel like there are great options because fraud and abuse on the internet are a huge problem. And you can understand why companies want to collect a lot of data to monitor it. I'd want to do that if I were running a, a tech platform. But it's pretty easy for them to also over-define what counts as security and anti-abuse data and then to just spy on ordinary people under that rubric. And so it doesn't feel like we have a good answer there. For Prop 24, overall, it feels like a disappointing set of questions to be asked. We do want privacy, but not necessarily the version Prop 24 would give us. And we, we do want to abolish money bail, I think many of us, but not necessarily the way that Prop 25 would do it. That was Peter Eckersley giving us the lowdown on Props 24 and 25. In the last part of the show, Dr. Anthony Fauci and Kentucky Senator Rand Paul's heated exchange during a recent Senate hearing gained media attention after the top infectious disease expert stated that the Republican lawmaker misrepresented his remarks. Paul refuted Fauci's claim that New York was able to bring down its test positivity rates by following wearing masks social distancing, and avoiding crowds. Instead, Paul implied that New Yorkers developed enough community immunity to bring down the number of COVID-related deaths and infections. Increasingly, conservative legislators and protesters are looking toward herd immunity and the Swedish model as an approach to the pandemic. With us to set the record straight is University of Southern California Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology, Paula Cannon. She spoke with Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano. Welcome to the show. Hey, Leilani. Nice to be here. What is herd immunity 
And is it a viable solution to America's COVID crisis? Herd immunity is the basic idea that if you get a certain number of people that have already been infected or have been vaccinated and therefore have immunity, then the likelihood of an infected person encountering another naive person who doesn't have immunity and passing on the disease is significantly reduced. And effectively, the infection rates then start to die out. But an essential tenant of this idea is that you can separate people who are at lower risk of dying or having bad consequences from COVID infection from the general population. That would be people over 70 and people with pre-existing conditions. And so the idea is that you want this herd immunity to develop in younger, healthier, lower risk individuals, prevent them from coming into contact with higher risk individuals while they are contagious and while a population is establishing herd immunity. That seems to be a a dangerous option considering that we can't separate ourselves. Dangerous is one way of describing it. Wishful thinking would be another. We can actually do the experiment and, and do the math for the United States. The current estimates at the moment for what percentage of people would have to be immune to COVID to establish herd immunity are about two thirds. So for our population of about 330 million, that means 220 million people would need to be infected. Our current death rate looks to be just shy of 3%. That might be too high because we probably don't have a complete picture of how many people have been infected. So even if we take a conservative estimate of 1% fatality, then the cost of having 220 million people infected with COVID is going to be 2.2 million deaths. To put that into perspective, that means that we could basically wipe out the population of Maine and Vermont and still have enough room to also take out Guam and the U.S. Virgin Islands. So I personally think that's dangerous, unacceptable and unrealistic. Well, there has been a lot of media attention around Dr. Fauci's testy exchange with Rand Paul over herd immunity at a recent Senate hearing. Is New York's decline in COVID rates due to herd immunity or was it because of something else? So uh, Senator Paul, you know, referred to the fact that New York's rates have gone down considerably. You know, as people probably remember, New York was the state that was hardest hit in March and April. And current estimates are that up to 22% of people in New York City may have been exposed and therefore may be immune. But as I've already stated, to get to herd immunity, even 22%, which is a a disputed number, won't get you there. You really have to have closer to two-thirds. So I think the reality is that the decline in New York, rather than being caused by herd immunity, simply reflects the fact that everybody is practicing the mitigating strategies that we know can reduce infection, practicing social distancing, good hand hygiene, trying to be more outdoors than indoors, and of course, wearing a face mask. That would be my, and I think most experts' opinion of why New York has been successfully able to reduce its numbers and not herd immunity, as Senator Paul was suggesting. Why is it that Senator Paul and others are beginning to rally around this concept of herd immunity? Well, I think the attraction is obvious because it basically means we don't have to do anything. We won't take a hit on our economy. We can just let this disease run its course. Young people, healthy people will get infected. They won't have any consequences. Older people can be successfully isolated. We can all be happy with 2.2 million dead Americans. How is herd immunity achieved in any given population? Sure. So herd immunity refers to the fact that 
when you get a certain percentage of people that are immune to a virus, either because they've been naturally infected or because many people have been vaccinated, then the likelihood of an individual infected person transmitting that virus to anybody else is significantly reduced. There's a sort of a mathematical calculation behind all of this that takes into account how infectious the virus is. And for the current coronavirus, the estimates are that about two-thirds of the population would need to be immune, either through previously having had the infection or, most ideally, through being vaccinated. We see with Sweden taking the approach of herd immunity through natural infection. While every other country was locking down and social distancing, Sweden was just about doing the total opposite. Most schools, bars and restaurants had stayed open while social distancing wasn't really being enforced. And yet their COVID rates went down. Is it because of herd immunity? No. So certainly recently after their disastrous start, Sweden's rates have come down. But I think you can attribute that to other factors rather than herd immunity. First of all, they've had a five-month ban on large gatherings. The official guidance, while not mandated, has been to advocate for social distancing to work from home. Swedes aren't stupid people. They see what's happened in their country. They see what's happening in the world. And people have adjusted their behavior accordingly. Sweden also, it's a small country. They have a very long summer vacation period. And in addition, they've really increased their safety in their nursing homes. They tend to live in smaller households, fewer intergenerational households as well. So I think all these things have allowed the rates in the country to come down. And now they are looking to be reopening things. So I think it's disingenuous to attribute that to herd immunity. In addition, herd immunity requires some evidence to back it up. And the percentage of Swedes that have been exposed and therefore, for example, have antibodies in their blood against COVID is very debated. There have been reports that a maximum of 30% of people have been exposed, but this has also been highly disputed. For now, we know that less than 1% of the country is known to have been infected based on a test. The levels that could have been infected are, are purely speculation, but certainly are nowhere near the two-thirds amount that would be needed to achieve a viable herd immunity model. There's been a lot of criticism of Sweden. Why has their approach been seen as problematic, particularly among the elderly and nursing homes? So I think one of the reasons with Sweden is they got out there and announced, or at least their state epidemiologist did early on, that they were going to use a herd immunity approach And so that clearly put a lot of focus on what was happening in Sweden. And then, because they had very high levels of infection in their nursing homes, they didn't close down visits to nursing homes until the end of March. Certainly, the international community sat back and pointed a finger and said, there you go, we told you so. I think Sweden hasn't done such a bad job since. I feel like they were shocked by this. They've made some adjustments. Sweden is not a country where business as normal is going on. Sweden is a country that bans large gatherings. It's closed down its schools and universities for three months. There's been a lot of changes in Sweden. And as a result, they have definitely got their epidemic more under control. Do we even know that if you have tested positive for an antibody that you are immune or will remain immune? When you get some infections or indeed some vaccines like say measles, you only get measles once in life. The immunity you develop is lifelong. But other viruses and the coronaviruses are in this category 
Immunity typically only lasts a couple of years. And this is why, for example, some of the other coronaviruses we know about, which only cause mild cold-like symptoms, people can get them multiple times through their life. So what is a big unknown presently is when people have been infected with COVID and they develop immunity, how long does that immunity last? And does that immunity truly protect them from being reinfected? And there is some reason to believe that immunity won't last and it may not be a perfect protection from reinfection. One of the things I would be looking for as we develop vaccines is whether or not the vaccines can be as good as or preferably better than the natural infection and give people a longer lasting and more robust immunity. Where does that leave us? These are really hard times for people. And loosening COVID restrictions in the name of herd immunity might just be the economic boost that they need to survive. I would say that you can loosen economic restrictions and the harsh restrictions like lockdown by having a population that understands that pretty small changes in personal behavior can get us all there as well. So if people really did wear face masks, practice social distancing, and were conscientious about this, then we could keep the levels of infection in our communities here in Los Angeles, in California, in the U.S. and other countries We can keep the levels below a critical amount that will allow us to reopen businesses and schools and get back to some semblance of normal. But it really requires people to be doing these small things that are asked of them. And to me, the tragedy is that I feel that isn't fully understood and we are not getting that message from our political leaders in this country that here's the deal, guys, if you do this, We'll get our numbers down and we can reopen. And to me, there's just no choice. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you. That was USC professor of molecular microbiology and immunology, Paula Cannon. She spoke with Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano. We've covered the sticky situation that Prop 24 and Prop 25 leave California voters in and how herd immunity is probably not the best strategy for combating our ongoing coronavirus pandemic. That's it for this week's Digital Village. It's KPFK's Fall Fun Drive, and we're closing it out soon. And I'm joined by Alan Minsky to help finish off the show. Thank you so much, Brittany. And it's great to be here. This is what I'm asking people this fun drive to pledge support to KPFK to keep this unique radio station going. Call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK right now and pledge support. You can also donate online by going to kpfk.org forward slash donate. Shows like Digital Village, shows like Background Briefing, all of our music shows, all of our arts and literature shows, all of our political shows, we are unique. We are community radio, and we bring you perspectives that you don't hear anywhere else in Southern California media. In this time, it is so important to support KPFK Radio. If you look at the major political issues of our time and where the public is on issue after issue after issue, You rarely hear advocates for the positions that the people support, but here on KPFK, you hear that. When it comes to digital culture and the politics of all of 
the international and digital industries, it's again, KPFK, where popular sentiments are reflected that you don't hear in the mainstream media. So call 818-985-5735. 818-985-KPFK is the number to call. And there are thank you gifts that have been offered across the fund drive that people in the phone room can help you with those. I'd recommend the KPFK Shepherd Fairy Design face mask. I believe it's the most popular thank you gift of this fund drive. It's uh, just a $65 pledge of support to KPFK. Of course, it's designed by one of the legendary graphic artists of our time, Shepherd Fairy. It's a great way to let people know about KPFK, let people know about Digital Village. When you're out and about in society, as people will certainly look closely at your face mask and wonder what that image is, and they'll see a beautiful Shepherd Fairy design, and they'll know and learn about KPFK Radio. 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. In recent months across the United States, there have been demonstrations out in the streets, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations calling for justice in policing. This has been the top issue and one of the top issues defining Southern California society for decades. Which radio station has gotten it right? And which media outlet has gotten it right? There's really only one. It's KPFK. We need KPFK here for the future. It's just as simple as that. Ain't nobody else going to tell the truth about powerful institutions in our society, whether it's Google, Facebook, the LAPD, the U.S. government. It's going to be KPFK that's going to do it, folks. So call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. It's one of the best places you can put your money if you want social justice in our time. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Brittany. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In a Quantum World. You can hear all our episodes by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org, click audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can also follow us on all things social using at digitalvradio or at digitalvillage.org. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. And we'll we'll see see you online. online.